Welcome to the Eric Schlein Podcast, where personal development platitudes can get the hell out. Completely devoted to ontology, breaking down distinctions of human consciousness as an access to enhancing performance. Here's your host, Eric Schlein. And we have Scott Forge on the show. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It is a pleasure to have you on. So what are you up to today? <laughs> well, today is Friday for me, so I'm kind of wrapping up a lot of work. And there's only two more work days in a week, so I'm looking forward to that. The weekdays continue on into the weekend, so it's kind of like one big moving party of ontological and business distinctions that just keeps going. Well, that seems like you live and breathe this shit in your life. For people who don't know who you are, you know, I had you on my other podcast mm-hmm. maybe six yeah. months ago or a year ago, whatever it was, on the Intelligent Investing podcast. But for those of you who don't know who Scott Forge is, who are you? What do you do? What's your, what's um, your deal? <laughs> That's a great question. What's my deal? Well, I am a lifelong advocate of the world of consciousness and the intersection between consciousness, performance, and that flow state. And I found it very early in life, working as a judo player with a Zen master when I was 11. I had no idea I was learning Zen. We just thought it was the part where we were quiet right right before we fought. But always chasing that space had led me through a variety of different things, including leading ontological work, working as a civil rights lawyer, and then now bringing consciousness to tech companies and to small businesses and creatives all across the world. So kind of, I work at the intersection of performance, creativity, and consciousness. One big kind of giant Venn diagram of that. And I'm kind of in that semi-retired state where I'm picking projects that I love to do, but I'm also training a group of people who are leading my work and the work of other retired forum leaders. Very so, cool. And when you say your work, what, what, what is your work? How would you describe your work? Well, most of the work that I've been doing lately has been to help people perform inside of businesses and out and have an, a real on-the-court kind of operative access to the world of consciousness. So we find that a lot of people want to go away and meditate, which is a really great thing. And that's the first stages of learning to train you know, and separate yourself from the mind. And, you know, if you can't do that, you're going to have a real struggle with most everything in life. A lot of times people think that's all mindfulness and meditation is, but actually that's like step one. That's like add, subtract, multiply, and divide. It's the basics. Right. We kind of work with people to be effective in what they want to be, from architects to actors. I've got a singer-songwriter team I'm coaching that we're applying those concepts of being present, what they want to create, and connecting that to the value they create in the marketplace, which is how they make money and then capture some value. So whether it's big teams or big companies and how they work together in teams and groups 
and cultures all the way down to individuals. We've, we've developed a series of ways of looking at life and act, actions, maps, processes, models that you can look at. And by looking at those, start to have some insight into what's stopping you, what's getting in the way, and what, what enhances that and makes it better. So, so what, would be, what would be an example of some processes or models that you use to help people think a little differently or, or perform, have an elevated level of performance in, in real time? Okay. Well, one of them we're doing right now, it's great because I have my first, but it's a real big deal. I have my first, first person who's leading some of our work other than a couple of us who designed it. Okay. And it's called shadow work. And, you know, shadow, everybody talks about shadow from Freud and Jung all the way forward. Everybody refers to shadow as anything you don't like about yourself. And it's become kind of a cultural, I, I think it's become somewhat of a thing now in the culture of doing shadow work as a kind of an accepted uh, a way of looking at yourself. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Eric. Everybody talks about doing shadow work. And that's great because people used to like, let's hide it. And now people are like, well, I know there's parts of me that are dark that I don't like. One aspect of it definitely is where people get forceful. So we see people get forceful and try and make something happen regardless of the cost to the relationship or the ultimate cost. It's like a short-term thing. And so people have been trying to think, how can I avoid that? How can I produce results and have relationship? You know, we kind of had that green meme world where people were in relationship and process is way more important than anything else. So even if we don't produce results, we don't care. Okay. For those of us who run companies, yeah, that's not so tenable. There are results in life to produce. So the, the, the more powerful to look, way to look at it is how can we have relationships that honor who we are and what we're up to while producing great results. And that's kind of in your tribal leadership. That's kind of stage four, stage five type of tribe that's out for something bigger than themselves, a game that they're playing, that they're giving their word to, and the relationship comes from the game, not family dynamics or some issues from the past. So the shadow work is really the kind of work that gets in a way of playing those games. So we got a course out right now that's like 10 sessions where people discover that part of them we call the shadow. But rather than analysis like Freudian analysis or Jungian analysis, which I absolutely love. We're good friends of analyst Richard, myself, both who, who wrote a book about, you know, the middle passage and going through that in life. And Richard and I both led your and Rich, Rich, Richard is who? Richard Condon. Okay. Fellow retired forum leader. Oh, you're doing work with him. Well, we did. Okay. God, it was about five years ago or six years ago. He okay. called his leap. We called ours book club. Because in ours, we first rule is you don't talk about book club. But we both look from this Jungian analyst point of view about what it is to go through that middle passage of life where you go from society, social, your social self to that more Maslowian higher self of what do I want to express with this life and what's my life on my own terms really about. And yeah. Jung went through a midlife crisis when he broke from Freud. So Jung was one of the greatest thinkers, philosophers, psychologists who actually documented his own process, which is not fun, of going through that middle passage and where you arrive. And most people don't ever do it. Or if they do, you know, it doesn't go well. You know, you have your midlife crisis car or your midlife crisis girlfriend or, you know, you go to India to look for yourself. 
you know, you won't find yourself there because you're not there. Until you get there, then you are, but that doesn't help. Right. You know, that's where the joke, wherever you go, there you are. You got to be somewhere. So that searching goes away because there's nothing to find. But that's easy to say on the other side of it, right? But on this side, it seems like there's something missing and some knowledge, some, I don't know what. Something's missing and it's outside of me. And when I get it, then I'll be free. And then other right. people go, it's all within you. Yeah, bullshit. If you're looking within you, you still haven't found it. So nonsense. So then, you know, some of the some of the shadow work is resolving all that stuff for yourself. So for us, we wanted to on the court quick access to when my shadow starts, how do I know it's running? What the hell is it? Really? And so working with a lot of people, me and Richard and and Richard Condon and Anurag Gupta and Alan Kahn, and I think a few of us who's a retired forum leader as well. We came up, I came up with this thing. We all kind of came up with our talk about the shadow, but I came up with this thing about how you know it starts and it starts with a saying. And it's really simple. When some idiot gets in your way, somebody frustrates your intention, mm -hmm. what comes out of your mouth, usually out of your mouth, but not necessarily, maybe you say it to yourself, but here's the secret, you say it out loud. You say something like it hits you and you have a reaction. It's like we call it, and it's from my lawyer days, excited utterance. You say, you idiots. Or oh, what the hell? How is this possible? And the moment that happens, a world ensues. And then you get to deal with the people, the circumstances, with the strategies and tactics you have, we call a cascade. It takes you all the way down to the basement, the world of no possibility. And it's quite funny because, you know, we've taken people who have never done any transformational work, never meditated, just people off the street. And they go, yeah, everybody's idiots. Yeah, you're idiots. Or they'll have a way of looking at it. And the moment something happens, like somebody cuts you off in traffic and you'll say it to yourself and off to the races you go. Yeah. And you find out that basically that shadow thing's running like 99% of the time at some level. And you're always ready to say it. What always like, makes me laugh is that you're surprised. So if, you're, if what your shadow says, we call it your excited utterance, is what the hell? You say it 50 times a day. Our question is, why are you surprised? You can't be this stupid. This is so, ugh. And a lot of times they're really blue. So we had to, in companies, we had to create HR versions of it and then a real version. So you'd say, what the heck? But it wasn't quite what the heck. It was like WTF or worse. And so it got to be a lot of fun. And people come and they tell the truth about what they say to themselves. Then they operate on top of it, which is all pretense. And people become fundamentally three ways of being dirty, rotten scoundrels. Now I got to figure out how to deal with them. And then when push comes to shove, hammer time. Now I'm going to get forced for, I'm going to run. And you can see this pattern everywhere in life. And so that's some of the work is rather than doing it analytically, just look at how the world occurs to you and your reaction to the world, that dance, that interaction starts to shape the world into the way it is for you. And if you don't enter, if you don't interrupt that, it's just like you're going into the basement and the lights out and you bounce down every step to the bottom. And most of life is those compensations in the middle. So once somebody gets that, then you could look at, well, what's my life for? What's my purpose? 
What do I do? How do I fulfill it? But the moment you say that, you're gone. There's a whole world. Welcome to hell. So that's like an example of how we take the ontological world and bring it into a world for people that's real, that they can actually share this is how it is for me. It's non-analytical and it's super effective. One of the pieces in there is you look at, well, what does it do to other people? And as you interview people, you're going to find out not only do they know what you say to yourself, which is really funny, but it, it creates a huge impact. It's, it's, it's a real problem. So that's like one quite simple access that's both very deep and ontological in terms of how the world occurs. And yet anybody can do it. All you have to do is tell the truth about what life's like. Now, how do you find in your experience that has an impact for people who are either running companies or, you know, involved in, in, in management in a business? I would imagine, obviously, it has improved effects. But what have you seen are some very common, you know, things that happen in, the, in businesses? Well, in business, it's just like for people, whether it's business or with your kids or anything. The moment you have that reaction, you instantly become less effective or worse yet you turn people into a certain kind of person so what we found in business is there's you know and you've run businesses anytime you're responsible for accountable for something or you want some result it is easy for somebody to thwart that intention it's easy to get frustrated yeah it's easy for things not to go the way you want them to go and that reaction immediately creates you being less effective because you have a patterned way you deal with it, which may not have anything to do with reality. So what we see is where you, where most people go inside of that kind of world, they start to become pressuring, forceful. I love when say, people say it's pressurized, like, like a plane. Yeah. You know, they mean they're loading heaps of pressure. And what we see is it doesn't cause performance. In fact, it creates a really negative atmosphere. People get upset. They feel threatened. They feel misunderstood. And so the working relationship goes off and the results go off. Now, in some companies, they're making enough margin that it doesn't matter, or there's enough people that somehow in the face of that produce results. But what you'll see is a lot of churn and a lot of people leaving and a lot of people upset. And so you see real world like NPS scores, net promoter scores, like would you recommend somebody to work here? I, I just worked at a company where the end, the net promoter score was 13%. Right. That's jump out the window numbers. I mean, it was like 13%. Everybody's actively ready to kill everybody else. Wonderful. And trying to get out. So in terms of results, you got no teams, you got no groups. You just got people putting up with each other. And it... The moment you get threatened, you tend to threaten people, which tends to threaten people. So you got a whole world of threatening people and a culture of upset and trying to produce results and be a hero in the face of it. And so, you know, whether it's relationship with your kids when you get upset with them or a relationship where you go, Jesus Christ, you know, and it's just right there. And then the world ensues. So it pretty much ruins every relationship and whatever impact that creates. Well, that's that world. People try yeah. and compensate by being nice or patronizing or they get forceful or run. But once that comes out of your mouth, you're pretty much done. What What is the, at least in your view, what is it about sort of the general cultural awareness or cultural consciousness that has people in business, I'm generalizing, but people in business 
not willing to make as much time for something like what you're offering as you know, if you came to a CEO and you said, Hey, you know, I figured out this really interesting way to cut some cost here and you know, it's not going to harm the business by doing it. Most, most people are going to do whatever they take will take and make the time to, to produce that result. But if you go up to a CEO and say, Hey, you know, if we all did some shadow work, you know, we'd be producing a lot more results you might hear something like, well, you know, that sounds interesting, but we don't, I don't have the bandwidth or I don't have the time for that right now. What, what, what is it about our, our, our consciousness or awareness that, that has people less willing to make time for, for, for this kind of work, even though I believe it's crucially important? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's probably a number of different factors. So walk me through that. Not a problem. The thing I like now is people are more willing to do that for themselves. I mean, going to meditation retreats, going to consciousness things, being in conscious capital, being, you know, people are willing to invest in themselves. And they realize, as we like to say, they need to do the between work, you know, the work between their ears, as well as what's between other people or yeah. what's between you and a customer. On a personal level, uh, people are really up for that, right? You know, people scour the internet, they do courses individually we know we are a capacity right like my capacity to be with you and work with you and produce results is important yeah and so it's kind of funny it used to be people just didn't do that you went to college and then you got a master's or a doctoral degree and then you're good for the rest of your life <laughs> like how that would work i don't know but you know now people are willing to do it when it comes to companies i think what weighs on their mind, you know, as a former CEO and a guy who's running like 30 some odd companies right now as, you know, coaching and advisor or, or you know, part-time executive, what weighs on everybody's minds is, oh my God, we've got to produce results. It's survival. And then the, the thing that gets in the way is I need you to draw me a picture, you know, like the leg bones connected to the hip bone, the hip bones. I need a connection between the kind of work you're doing and an actual result that my business cares about. Now, idiots say things like, well, how will this make me money? Well, money's not the only thing of value for God's sakes. You know, we could eliminate waste. If you had any idea how many hours are wasted in stupid meetings where people are upset and nothing's really happening, you know, we cut the work that we can have, which we've done that. We've had two week, two day meetings turn into four hours and then play golf for the rest of the time because we didn't spend all that time reactivating everybody and doing all that nonsense. It's, it was, it's kind of funny how little time takes when you've done some work. Right. So a lot of the, the work that we do on human development, consciousness, working together, those things that get between us, although, although it will make us more creative and more effective, we see a lot of the business value is really cutting costs and cutting risk and cutting out waste. And so if you look at where business people think from, they think from, look, how will this get us more clients and make more money? Well, take a sales team and, you know, you can tell real quick, but it, but it, it shows up first initially in cutting costs and reducing risk. People do less stupid things. People uh, don't waste as much time so they can do more. And that seems hard for us in a business setting to really come up with the KPIs and really realize that's real. If you only stare at a couple things like revenue and number of customers or number of users, 
you may not see it show up there directly. So the less sophisticated business people, I think, have less time for it. In the work I'm doing with the government and government contractors that I can't mention, but they may be in aerospace, they're just scared to death about we have to hit our numbers, we have to hit our target. The contract says X, what do we have to do to make that? Can this help make that? And and they got to figure it out and they don't have much time and they're scared to death. So it's really hard to get much time for them to think through something more subtle than this copier is faster than that one. So the ability to do the thinking, very hard. People don't have time to do the thinking. So I find you really got to make simple diagrams and have people get exactly how it makes a difference because people just won't take the time. Would you say that it's interesting, right? Because you we're yep. talking about people not making the time, not willing to do the thinking. But my observation is the average business owner thinks of themselves as quite sophisticated. Yes. You see, there's, there's definitely a disconnect between how sophisticated someone thinks they are versus how lazy they actually are in their thinking. Would you say that to be accurate? Yeah. 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 Um, a friend of mine, Alex, says it this way. Okay. When I first got to Silicon Valley after I completed as a forum leader and built a company, sold that, and I started working in the Valley doing some agile work, which is really science and consciousness put together, that's all, in okay. scientific methodology, right? Tell the truth about what's a hypothesis. How's that hard, right? You think, you think, but it is. And you, and you get here and you go, okay, everybody's really sophisticated. No, everybody's really smart. Sophisticated? Some, oh my God. But there's a lot of people who are really smart and not so sophisticated. And they mistake the two. So even if we walk through, like, First thing I do in a business is I want to know, understand your what it is you create, how is it, how is it you create value? And usually they'll tell me about a product and then they stutter and they go, don't know. And we have to go through the basics of value creation and market segmentation. And then there's all sorts of breakthroughs and ahas. Mostly business people get, for lack of a better term, lucky. They have a little subject matter expertise and and they hit something that has a good margin. And those two things cover up the lack of thinking and laziness. That actually becomes the proof of their intelligence and that they're not lazy, rather than you just happen to get lucky because you got a high margin product that was right time, right place. And really you need to start, now you need to do the thinking or you're not gonna be around very long. So unfortunately, success covers up a lack of thinking and a lack of sophistication, understanding how things work, both in the business and then with people. So you got two, you know, if you looked at it, you could say there's four realms. I mean, one model is there's four realms of business, the subject matter expertise, the business acumen, the, the human part of it, definitely, and then process. If you looked at those four, you got to kind of have all four of them. Mostly you got one or two, and that's pretty much it. A lot of subject matter, not so much acumen, a little bit of process, and not much understanding of how humans operate. And if the product has a margin, it covers up the fact that you're barely running. So no, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. No, no, totally. So, it totally makes sense. It's interesting. You, it's not, you it, could it, take it, a lifetime just on market segmentation and how do I reach that market? But I think you could take a lifetime on any of those. Yeah. And then the question is, how do I know enough about all of them 
without doing a deep dive on any of them. But then at some point, you got to do a little bit of a deep dive. Like, you know, uh, sometimes I, I'm coaching a company right now that did 20 last year. And when I ask them, like, market segment, they have no idea. They just told me a couple of clients. I was like, how do you get clients? Well, people see our work and another person comes, gets it, which is great until you have to go get clients and you don't know how. Right. Yeah. That's a common thing. That's a, that's a very common thing to almost pride yourself on not having a process. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you do it? Magic. Like another onological program we're leading with, with Jubal Rafferty's work. Jubal was a form leader for a while. He's one of the world experts on expertise and how you transfer it. And his team and I worked together for a couple of years and came up with this webinar with Rachel Davis helped with it who's also a retired former leader. She's working with, what's his name in Vietnam? I can't think of it. Craig guy. And, and we're looking at expertise. Like, what, what is it that I do that actually works? What's my process? And Jubal, I remember telling me, he goes, man, onologically, people like to go, how am I so successful? Because I'm a good-looking genius. That's how. And we want to keep it like this romantic mystery of our success and it's just about us and our uniqueness which is all crap of course i think a lot of a lot of us want to just feel special yeah i mean that's sort of my bullshit is i want to be unique and special and then prove to you how special i am without ever having to say it yeah yeah have people figure it out Mm -hmm. without you saying it yeah 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 it's kind of a neat thing when you really get your expertise because it's both narrow at the same time but very unique. Yeah. Like there is an access and a process and a mental model or a series of them that you kind of deploy that's nobody's just the same. So you actually do have a unique genius. It's just not probably what you think it is. And, right. and that's been fun to kind of play with and realize and go, oh, yeah, this is where I really am, you know, an expert. Now we may good be... You know, to be an investor, a value investor, you have to have at least competence in how many realms. But but again, it's not magic. No. You know? And the, I think that, you know, like, I think we, we, we hold so strong to our opinions of ourselves to the point that we, you know, think that we are our opinions in, in, in some sense. And if we have some opinion about how unique and special or something in that world, breaking, you know, our expertise down into a process can kind of chip away at that opinion of how special we are. So yes. sure, it's a unique, I mean, I think this is, I, I hear what you're saying is what you're, what you're saying is you, you have a unique point of view, you have unique mental models. And you can also replicate them if you can figure out what processes, what mental models are needed. And that's very threatening for someone with the opinion of how special they are. Funny you should mention that. <laughs> one, of, one of our experiences in doing this process with Jubal, the first time we, that I did it with him and he'd been doing it for a while, yeah. is my experience was it was less about a conversation for expertise and possibility. And the experience was like beating a confession out of an inmate with a phone book. Okay. So what do you mean by that? Just that it was eight okay. hours of you get, you know, and then let's take apart this, and then you know we look at this moment where you've created this thing, and then you start to look at well, 
what was the process in the model? What was important? What are the results you were out to produce and the results you were out to avoid? Yeah. And what are the decisions and what are the criteria? And as we started to take that apart, people just would start to go, you know, and he turned it into a program that was like, you know, 250 pages. And it's frighteningly academic and rigorous. But people so resisted just looking at that. Yeah. I know for myself, the first time I looked at one aspect of my expertise and I said, well, let's pick something innocuous that I've trained people on, okay, that I'm really good at. Sure. That I have an objective, not like I think I'm good at, like produce real world results. And I said, when events happen, when I'm in the middle of an event, if something happens, I'll still produce a result. And we started taking it apart and we started to get... Okay, and I took an incident, right? Like I was leading a, a big guest evening session for Landmark at a hotel. I think it was in Kansas City or St. Louis. St. Louis, I think it was. Okay. Anyway, and this huge hailstorm started. And, you know, when you're in those big ballrooms, the ceilings are made of tissue paper. And it just starts to hit, right? And you can hear dum, 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 dum. And you're clear it's a huge storm and a hailstorm and everybody's car is sitting outside because everybody drives there, right? And people are starting to freak. And one guy got up and, and, and there's like this impetus that happens where you go, aha, time to use my expertise. No, I mean, it's just instant. It's the right. Okay, I know what you're saying. It's like, okay, there's something I need to, need to do about this right now. Like I'm going to yeah. go into superpower mode. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when the stove catches on fire, you don't go, huh. That's interesting. <laughs> Do you think I should like put this out and no, you just grab right. something and you suppress the fire one way. Could you, could you imagine if you were in your car and someone stopped short and be like, huh, you know, I could put my foot on the brake pedal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just st almost stimulus response. And that's why right. we like to call the impetus, or at least that's what I made up. But there's some impetus that triggers it. And then it's like a series of sequence or I'm sorry, a series or sequence of, well, how do I see the world? What are the components? What are the results to produce right now and results to avoid? And the first thing you know I saw that I did is I get attention. So I have to interrupt whatever's happening and get the attention focused on me. So one guy goes up and you know I got a microphone, thankfully, and I make sure it's not in my mouth. And I went, stop, you. And the whole room goes and looks at me, you. So that was the first thing, is get the focus back on me and not the emergency. I was like, I, I didn't know I did that. But if I looked at three things, that's always the first thing I do. You know, and there was a sequence of things. There yeah, so, so walk, walk us through that. So you... Well, I'm going to walk you through a couple because I can't remember Yeah, all. you don't do all 40 or whatever, but, you know, walk <laughs> us through a few. We'll be here all night that way, but... You know, walk us through it. So you, say, you tell them to stop, stop. right? And I People get look at you. You got, you got the attention. Me. You got the focus on you. And then what happened? So what what happened after that? Then the next step is is I need to now acknowledge what's happening in a context where it shifts them from worrying about what's happening to listening to me. Okay. So now I've got to create a context. Like the context is. It, the acknowledgement, I think, for that one is, yes, all hell is breaking loose. 
and the hail is coming down. And people were like, re kind of recreate. They got, I got what was happening on. I acknowledge, instead of it in the unsaid reaction, I acknowledge it. Hail is coming down. Yeah. That is the next step. And maybe you're like, oh, he got my attention and he hears what I hear. Okay. Now the next thing is I'm going to take the lead, follow me. And say, so then it's now a solution. Okay. Look, you know, this guy's still standing there looking at me. And so I ask him a stupid question. What kind of car do you have? A BMW. It's out there. Okay. Next is bringing what I call a radical reality to what's happening, absent any meaning, because people are nuts about the meaning. Totally. Right? So I just ask him, dude, even if you laid on top of your BMW, are you going to be able to protect it? He said, no. I said, this is what happens in life. Do you have insurance? And he said, yes. You'll be making a call later because your car is right now getting pelted and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Nothing. No. And that's okay. So the next space is the empty and meaningless space. Like that's what's so. Rocks are hard. Water's wet. Hail is coming down. Your car's getting dented. That's what's so. Nothing you can do about it. Can you just be with that? So being with it. And then you can shift the context to called we're here now together for two hours to make a difference in life. We're going to call our insurance agents afterwards. So I really created that. Now, on the way home, before you get in the car, you're going to take pictures, right? And then you're going to text that and you'll get paid. Okay, now, the mo then that we're shifting the context to the most important thing you can do for the next two hours is not go outside, get wet, and get pelted. You just ruined the whole opportunity. You're here with your friends. What's the opportunity in front of you? Yeah. That's the shift of context towards something that they can give themselves to rather than the response to the craziness. Is, isn't it amazing how people by default spend so much time and energy on the response to the craziness? It would have run for five hours. Yeah. And, right? and people would have been nuts for five hours in my car and wonder whether they'll pay. Yeah. Insurance companies pay for hail damage. Yeah. I never get over how wild that is. Even though I, I see it all the time, I, I still get blown away by it every time. I know it's funny. You like know, you're, you're, a grown, you're a grown adult. Yeah. Well, you hit my car. Yeah. Didn't mean to. That's why we have insurance. Right. But my car is damaged. Yes. Yes, it is. Sorry. So there's a lot of that, like, you know, you'd think, well, Scott's just good at handling emergencies. Nah. I learned all that right. through watching, being trained, being shown the spaces that people go through when something shocks or surprises them, they give themselves over to their reaction. Just like, you know, Freud said, when things happen, we give ourselves to the reaction. I'm not enough. I'm not wanted. I'm not needed. You know, the maternal or paternal complex of, yeah. you know, I'm not taking care of or the world is intrusive. We give ourselves to that reaction and then our lives go out of control. So what, so what you would could, be, what, yeah, go on, sorry, go ahead. You could say that moment was yet, you know, a small iteration of a much bigger human phenomenon that we do. And if I could stop it for that minute, you know, for that three hour evening session, then, you know, maybe they got enough of what it is to take control of your life that would make a difference. Now for people listening you know, even if they don't go through extensive shadow work or, you know, do, do some really intense program, you know, just for 
sort of a preliminary thing. What are some, you know, principles or processes that you would recommend if someone sort of in reaction kind of had to get out of that? Because I think everyone, we can, we can all see it in hindsight and people know they do it and then knowing they do it doesn't stop it. So what's some access for people to actually stop it or, or sort of exploring that world a little bit and, and, and improving it? For, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could go about this since I've kind of come from the consciousness world. For me, it's all about recognition, Okay. right? If I could recognize that I'm not, that I'm having a reaction or I'm not conscious, which if you're somebody who's particularly not well, that's the definition of it is you can't tell. Right. But all of us, we get in a reaction and we're having, you know, a fit about, you know, our latte had too much foam in it and we're just, you know, our day is ruined and how will I live? You know, we all lose the plot right now. But, but if you can start to be aware, like looking ahead at what are my typical reactions to things? When hmm. things go badly, how do I know I'm reacting? If I hear myself say this, if I see myself having these thoughts, like I just can't wait to, you know, choke someone to death. If you're in, you know, say, you know, if you're sizing people up and going with their head, you know you're having a reaction. You got to take a deep breath and you got to go, what am I committed to? So I, I think for me, it's it's building up the early warning signals or after the fact, the recognition that, wait a second, this is all a reaction. It's a pattern reaction for my past. I, I think that's why a lot of Freud's work has been very powerful because Rather than looking at an incident, he's looking for a pattern that was given by an incident. Right. It's very hard for us to find the incidents where we caused that or created that or reacted to whatever stimulus the way we did. It is very easy to see our patterns. When push comes to shove, I run. Really? How often? All the time. Okay, what's it look like when you're running? So now can you look at what does it look like, feel like, what are the thoughts, the sensations, the body sensations? What are all the things that go with, I'm about to run? And so now you can see that and there's a you seeing it, which kind of is the definition of mindfulness is separating self from body and mind. Yeah. Right. So when you can see those things, now I have a little bit more of a choice, maybe to choose something else consciously. So... You know, as we like to say, you know, somebody has a go at you. And, you know, I was on a on a project for a company. I was dealing with the public and somebody had a go at me. And, you know, and I could have had a whole conversation with that person or not. And I was just like, well, here you go. There you are. I was like, great. That's where that person is. Nothing yeah. to do with me. I was like, great. Have a go. I want to go. I want to go back to something we talked about a little earlier. We, we spoke briefly about Agile, and you said it's this combination of the processes with the consciousness work. You know, I've never, I've never, you know, I don't have any experience with Agile coaching, but when I hear about it spoken about, because it's become very popular in the culture yeah. as well, like Agile, Agile Lean, like I hear all that all the time. Agile Lean, that's great. Yeah. I, that's what I, I hear that, right? And, but I never hear anything of a consciousness component. I've, I've always heard it about, you know, we're, we're making things, you know, work faster. We're helping companies be more agile and it, it seems to be very process oriented. So is it, is it that people just describe it 
terribly to, to someone like me who has no experience with that? Or are they doing something different? Or are you doing something different? Well, I think it's a combination of both those things. First, the, you know, people don't know what it is, so they describe it the way they do. You know, if you ask somebody to describe meditation, they would tell you about, well, I sit a lot and I try and think about nothing. Great. How's that working? Right. <laughs> Man, it is not the world uh, that I teach in meditation, but okay. Yeah. So it's part of people don't know what to say about it. And then the other part is kind of true. It's been labeled very much as a process or a methodology, but actually it's just a philosophy of we value this <laughs> over that. But the world of agility, why it resonates with lean, which is also just science. If you look back in the world of business for since Deming and the world of business process, it's one way to look at using a forcing function to have people think. Okay, so it's valuing people over process is one of the agile things. So what does that mean? Well, you know, we value what people say. And a lot of what we do in the agile world is we actually look at having things work. So we have this framework we use called Scrum, which is the actual process, not the values. When you put them together, you kind of, people talk about them the same, they're not. But the idea is we're going to be, care about people and respect and honor their contribution. And we're going to tell the truth about the fact that we have no idea what's going to happen, or we have a good idea what's going to happen, but there's some serious assumptions in there. So we're going to treat those as hypotheses. And that's what both Lean and Agile are about, are telling the truth about what we know, what we don't know. We're going to commit to create something, but it's going to be emergent. So we're not going to have the arrogance to think we already know how it's going to go or plan it all out. Yeah. And so we tend to work in the areas of human behavior where we have to work together to co-create something and co-author something. Because I may not have the technical capacity to create a piece of software but I do know what customers want. And somewhere in that interaction, that, that is a collaboration to create value, that process we know works a certain way. Like we get together, we know what, we get the right size problem. We're gonna experiment for a period of time and we're gonna stop and inspect and we're gonna communicate. So it's both requires consciousness, honor and scientific method. And that's kind of how we do it when we're really doing it well. And then we do retrospectives because you find that the phenomenon team is required. If we're not a team of people where it's that stage four tribe in tribal leadership, right? We're yeah. great. If it's I'm great and you're not, you're my slave, my flunky. I use you to get what I want. Everything goes away and all the mutual reciprocity of thinking of contribution disappears, so that being aspect that I am and that you are contributing, however we contribute to create something together, is required for Agile to work. Mm. And without that, what you have is just one more process. And it's just as good as any other process. And maybe a little science and a little iteration helps it be better. But the true breakthroughs of Agile require team and team requires relationship. And that's the ontological aspect of it. Now, what happens is engineers go agile. Great. We'll have lots of meetings. And then people like me or you walk in and go, got it. Okay. This meeting isn't, what did we do wrong and how do we fix it? This meeting is restoring relationship and what are we creating going forward? And then all of a sudden it starts to work. 
Hmm. So it's a mindset shift okay. more than anything. Because if you're in a mindset called, I'm smart and successful and industrious and you're stupid, lazy, will only work if I watch you. I have to make you and give you incentives that you don't want to do anything. You don't really care about anything. And I have to make you listen. Let, you know, I mean, it's good for building a pyramid, but it's not so good for building anything of value. So yeah. what we find is those worldviews and those views about myself, our relationship and creating together are what caused the incredible increase of value that Agile cause brings. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally, make, totally makes sense. You know, as you're, as you're sharing this, I sort of a random thought, you know, I, I you look at sports teams, right? And every mm -hmm. sports team has like their defensive coordinator and the head coach and the assistant coach and all that. Why do companies have like a coaching team? Yeah, it's funny because I, I feel like there should just be someone like you, you know, in every company, big or small. It's just, you know, just like how there's a CEO at every company and, you know, often a CFO and, and there's sort of general roles. Why isn't there a coaching staff? You know, I. That to me seems I, like a no brainer. I, I know they want to delegate it to culture and then they say it's small scales. I do coach a group of coaches at a number of different companies, right? Companies you would recognize <laughs> may run your search engine. I mean, and most of the corporate, I, I don't tend to coach inside those organizations. Mm -hmm. I tend to coach their coaches or a few executives because most of the coaching is what I would call career coaching. Yes. So what they're really doing is telling people how to behave in a culture to get ahead. And that career concern, like how do I get my career advanced is 90% of the coaching inside of companies. And, you know, I don't do that coaching because I wouldn't know why you would. I mean, who cares? They yeah. teach you how to do one-on-ones or say things like, well, I don't disagree at the end of the day. See, we never say, I, oh, you know, and it's all crap. None of it produces. It's all like anything. amateur hour. What well, doesn't produce any value. Right. What it does is it's the oil that makes the machine run smoother. But, and, it, and then your hope is if I learn all these skills, I'm going to be, go rise up and be the COO one day. And it's like, why would I, how is that, how does that create value? Yeah. I'm like so cringing inside. Yeah. It's career, it's career coaching. It's how can I advance my career? I'm ambitious and I want to learn how to operate inside of a, an enterprise scale and, and move up. You know, one answer would be learn how to create value and get a team together and kick some ass that I'm up for. But in terms of what are the strategies and tactics to survive and thrive inside of who cares? Yeah. I'm right there with you. And so there's, a lot of those coaches, right? And not many of them that are actually getting into, why do you have to dominate the shit out of everyone? Why do you have right. to control everything and everyone? What's that about? And there are some coaches out there that will actually look at it, but yeah, it's not very common. And the agile coaches, just from that world, there are a lot of really great agile coaches, but they so feel like no one cares, so they never get to talk about that aspect of it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. I actually led one of the big Agile events, the Agile camp here in Silicon Valley, and I led a thing about Agile requires team, and we brought tribal leadership to Agile as <laughs> an access to creating team 
And it was really amazing. People were like, well, you can't just create team. I was like, well, you can't. You don't have the distinctions. We actually can't. Right. It's kind of funny. But people were like so cynical and resigned that they just, you know, and that's where people are right now with Agile even is kind of cynical and resigned about it. Well, we tried Agile and it didn't work. Really? Describe this thing. Well, we spent three weeks and did sprints. That's not Agile. That's Scrum. And second of all, of course, that wouldn't work. There's a whole shift that has to happen. Yeah, I think a lot of the sort of more corporate studies that get done they lack context. So it's like, well, we tried this thing, but there was no actual structural shift in the relationship. So of course, it didn't, of course, the thing didn't work. Yeah. So the three models that are out there are, yeah, that sounds really good, Eric. How about I give you a team and you do it on that team inside a completely pressurized environment where everybody hates them and demands something and do that for six weeks and show us exponential results. Okay. Yeah, that's not going to happen. So that's the first thing they want you to do is the second thing they want you to do is they go, okay, you guys do that at the bottom, but we're still going to just do the crap we do. And that's pretty much the government model that we run into with hardware and aerospace and stuff, which is the same. We're going to spend five years figuring out how to do it and tell you how to do it. And then you try and be agile. And then the third thing is I need to get executive buy-in so I can force everybody to do agile. And that doesn't work very well. And then they even got a fourth variation, which is we're having an agile open. So we're going to have a big, you know, parade and conference with pizza and you come. And if you like agile, you do it. If you don't like agile, you don't. that won't work either. And so I think that's part of the failure is like, you know, my company I'm dealing with right now in Vietnam, you know, I get all the executives together and we just had the straight chat about starting for business results. Here's the things you're having work, not work. Yeah. I know you're, what are you committed to? Because if you're committed to it, you guys got to realize you're going to be out of business in four to five years. And, you know, then they start to see the mechanic, the mess, mechanistic nature of how they're looking at people and how they're treating things and have started to see the impact of it. Then they're like, okay, we got to change. You know, yeah. and it's still fun. You know, they were like, we got all these initiatives. Great. And we're going to roll out nine of these. Great. And by the way, how full are all the people with things you're already doing? Oh, so they're going to roll out one this year, not nine. And it's just funny because you're just waiting for them to go. And have you looked at the workload they currently have? The cover to paces kind of work? No. So that unconsciousness, as you point out how at each step, then, then they can see it and they go, oh, well, that explains the results we have. So it does take doing that, you know, the hip bones connected to the leg bone and have walking people through it until they can see it. But it's amazing when the light bulbs go on. So fascinating. Do you, do you see over time this changing where the kind of work that you do becomes just more of a, it would be weird that a company isn't doing it. Do, do you see that ever happening? Hmm. Uh, well, Eric, I think yes and no. I think I think just like our country, you're going to see strata. You're going to see the companies, their strategy is use and abuse, waterfall, dominate everybody. That's we, we have a big margin. It's a very, you know, kind of a yellow mean kind of 
thing where you're just going to hammer people through it and there's a few people at the top making decisions and everybody needs to shut up. Those are the guys when I talk to the executives, they're like, it's just blocking and tackling. All right. They're X's and O's. They repeat all the Jack Welch nonsense. You got to have people in the right seats and the right bus and the doing the right things and the right action and clear. We need to set expectations, all that crap. It's not going away anytime soon. Because well, well a- now it's Navy SEALs doing it. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's the thing now. Navy SEALs write, writing leadership books and coming into companies and talking about how important it is to have extreme ownership. Extreme ownership. You know, we're all on the same team. Like they're, they're talking good language. I don't know how useful it is. I don't know either. You know, I was lucky enough to work with Jack Schropp, who was head of SEAL Team 1 in Vietnam. And he was retired from that and was a forum leader for a while. I got to spend some time with him. And he was really interesting. He really was about excellence, but it was also really a lot of honor. It was kind of an interesting mix. But yeah, there's a lot of talk about, but but seeing it happen on the court is not the same thing. Totally, yeah. I mean, it, the Navy SEAL, like companies who bring a Navy SEAL in for a keynote or we're going to work with upper management with a Navy SEAL today, like that's that's a thing now. I Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like celebrity coaches. Right. And there there's a lot of them. I've been approached by companies. We want to bill you out at 10,000 an hour and you're a celebrity coach. And my first reaction is, I'm not worth it. I don't know what I would say that's worth $10,000 an hour. That would be a complete and total fraud. Yeah. <laughs> that's my first reaction. <laughs> what, what, the, what would I say? And then what... The, what would the relationship I would have be with someone that they would think that? Like, I'm just going to say something and that's going to be the way they should do it. In Agile, we kind of have this thing where, you know, we're going to think together and create the way. Well, how's the right way to do this? Science, right? We don't know. It's, you know, a little bit of situation, a little bit of application. We got to look at the team. Then every company is different. Everything. And everyone is different. You know, your ex, you know, like we were joking about expertise the way you you exercise your expertise to get somewhere is different than the way somebody else does. Right. And that can really create some fun on teams when you know your different processes, right? So yeah, everybody wants to simplify and have an answer or find a expert that has an answer. And we know that as a projection. That's a yeah. classic Jungian projection. I'm gonna project that what's lacking in me exists out there in the world and I'm going to make that thing be the solution. Now, as we know, it never is. Right. And then when it's not the solution, we double down and then we get disenchanted and then we finally give up on a projection and then we go through another pit and then we find another projection. And that's how we go from diet to diet to diet or we go from business guru to business guru to business guru and all the fads are that. You know, yep. If I get one more book from some jackass talking about KPIs or OKRs or weighted scorecards. Uh, that was the 90s. You, you probably didn't remember weighted scorecards. No. Dude, the KPIs, how many do you have? 47 of them. Got it. Are they really key if you have 47? Right. It's kind of that world of fads that, that are all really just half understandings from something that worked for one dude one time. And so now we're going to turn it into a book. And, that's why, you know, I've helped a few people write books, but I haven't written a book yet. Yeah. Well, now, now, you know, in the investing world, the big thing now is investing checklists. Everyone, everyone 
wants to have a checklist, which actually started with a good intention of like, okay, I'm going oh, to take myself, I'm going to take myself emotionally out of it. And, and, you know, is the management good? Oh, it's not. Okay. I'm not going to buy it. Like, you know, and so it starts out good, but then people have like, you know, 250 items on their checklist. And at that point, you're just taking yourself, like it, it you might as well just not have a checklist at that point. So it's the same thing as doing that in dating. Oh my God. I got a dating checklist. Do they do? Yeah. Oh God. Just shoot yourself. I think that I, I, I've, I think that's become sort of a, an older fat. I, I see less people doing that now. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, at least, at least where I live. Having been married five, five, five years, years five years ago in the dating market, that was a big thing. People telling you about oh, their checklist and I don't, I don't really see that anymore. That's funny though. They do it in the investing world. It's yeah, a big it's, thing. It's, it's actually a big, it's a, it's a real, it's, it's sort of like I'm signaling, I'm signaling I'm a rational individual by telling you I have a checklist. I'm not going to name well, any names, but I, I'm, that's I'm really a, fascinating. I would, I would assert it's not going to have much impact on investment performance over the next 20 years. That, that would, I would bet a lot of money on that. I'm not crazy. I have a checklist. It's proof. Yeah. Or I'm rational. I have a checklist. That's proof. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty ludicrous. Yeah. The bar is really low. You know, it's funny because, you know, when I was walking, I lead an accelerator now and again, and then we do have to talk about tequila. I was leading accelerator now and then, because it is the ultimate answer for ontology. And, and one of the guys I jokingly call older, he's like 10 years older than us. But he's an epic luminary in the world. Bill Riker runs Garage. I mean, we just sit and listen to the guy. And I was walking through <laughs> through a, a business model canvas that we tend to use that, you know, is like Eric Reese's Lean, but it's a little different. But I have my own version that's pretty much theirs, close enough. And Bill looked at that thing and he said, you know, 30 some odd years ago when we went to Princeton, we did the same thing, but we just called it the nine boxes. He said, this one's a little different. That one's a little different. But yeah, that's a business model. And it's kind of, you know, you get back to what you and you and I know, Eric, which is the, the ways of thinking and being, the ontological difficulties and successes, the joys that we have, where we connect with people, we create with people, where we do great things in business or do great things in philanthropy, philanthropy, where we're successful, all of those things are the things that we've been doing for the last five or 10,000 years. And none of them are a secret. And there's different ways of saying them. We could look at, you know, the mythology of the Greeks. We could look at our plays from the last 50 years. We could look at a variety of things. We could read our Joseph Campbell. You know, Joseph Campbell was saying, I identified the pattern. He didn't say I created it, which was phenomenal. But all of this has been there for thousands of years. And so I get really nervous about somebody who says, I have something new. It's really, yeah. I don't. You know, so when Bill looked at what I put up and I said, well, this is kind of some of the newer thinking, Bill. And he goes, yeah, that's pretty much the nine dots from Princeton. And I was like, yeah, of course it's not new. You know, you got a market segment and you got to look at in your market segment, what we used to call personas or people. And now they call them avatars, which is weird as hell. I'm like, why does it have a little image on the thing? Where's the, who are your avatars? And they talk about sales funnels. Like how many sales funnels do you have? What? 
fine. None of it's new. So then if we look at the kinds of ways that you and I know about connecting and collaborating and creating, those things that are in our way and the access ontologically has always been the same. Yeah. And if we can bring that to people and we can give them ways to expand and develop and mature themselves and work with each other and based in reality, like and produce real results, I think that's where the real value is of all the work that we're doing. Really well said. Really well said. Let's talk about tequila. Tequila. Do you want me to share mine first? Please. <laughs> I'm here in Silicon Valley, right? And we love the show Silicon Valley because it's not too far from reality. In fact, it's a lot closer than you think. And so lo and behold, when I was walking through Whole Foods before Christmas, I had to buy this to show my kids who are older. They're all in their late 20s. And it's from the show. It's actually Trace Commas Tequilas. So there's this fabulous huh. character who's just a renegade VC on, on Silicon Valley. I can't give his name. And he's just a hilarious guy. And he's like Trace Commas because he's a billionaire. And he goes, you know what that means in English? Trace Commas. Everybody's like, yeah, three commas. He goes, three commas. So literally, they came out with a Trace Commas tequila. That's and it's great. really good. Is it? Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. But, yep, right from the show, Silicon Valley. Here you go. It's even got a comma on the, the top nice. of it. It's a comma. Nice. So I just received two different bottles of my two favorite tequilas. They're not sold in stores. You have to either oh, really? get them, yeah, you have to either get them online or get them in Mexico. So the first one is called Cava de Oro. This is the okay. Anejo. And it's uh, it's slightly sweet. It's it's sweeter than most tequilas you'll ever have, and it's super super smooth. It I I I'm so spoiled by, I, I have an investor of mine who took me to a tequila tasting a few years ago and I discovered wow. you had CEOs from Mexico come in and show off their tequila. It was one of the best, like $50, $60 I ever spent in my life. And you know, if you didn't get hammered, you were doing it wrong. <laughs> the, the other bottle is called Ad, it's, it's Adictivo. Yeah. Wow, such intricate tops too. Yeah, yeah. And oh, if you want to see an intricate top, hold on one second. Okay. Yes, this fulfills our conversation called What Causes Presence and Being? Tequila gets you to nothing quicker than anything else. Totally. So this is Don Valente, which I finished. It's also from Mexico. Yeah, you can't get this in stores. How's it? So do you pour it like into the top and then pour no, it out? No, 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 no. So this is, this would be the top, right? Right. You'd, you'd pour it, but there's also like an extra little shot here. So you can, this is a cork here. You can remove the cork and pour that in too, if you want, <laughs> but it's really just for show. So, I mean, both of these have it too. If you can see there's tequila oh, yeah, on the top. I wondered about that. Of both of these too. It's like a I've... thing. In, it's a Mexican thing, I think. Uh, but so, so cool. Adictivo though, it, Cava de Oro is like slightly sweet. This is like drinking like dessert tequila. Like this is like the dessert wine of the tequila world. Wow. It almost tastes like there's a when you sip it, and these are all sipping tequilas. You don't take shots yeah. of any of these. Some people don't know. It's, uh, don't make margaritas with them. You're you're wasting your money. <laughs> <laughs> I love those people who buy expensive tequila and it's like, what do you want it's in like, your margarita? Pretty much the cheapest tequila you got. Literally, yeah. Like what? Once yeah. you add the mixture, yeah, it's gonna 
Yeah. So this, it has these like, uh, like almost like figs, like you're tasting figs wow. at the end. It's, okay. it's rich and delicious. Yeah. So that's the highly recommend either of these bottles. I drink the Anejos. They have an extra Anejo. I know Cava de Oro does. I don't know if uh, Aditivo does. And there's a Cristalino one as well, but the, the just the regular Anejos are my favorite. Wow. Yeah. That so is wanna, really, really yeah. cool. Yeah, I want, so I want to finish up with two questions for you, very brief. Sure. The first question is, what's, you know, something you've discovered, a breakthrough you had, a new insight, just something new this, I guess, year to date since we're at the beginning of the year, but the past 365 days that's been very profound and, and has actually produced some value for you? Maybe there's a few, just pick one. Let's see. New breakthroughs. Wow. That's hard because I'm trying to think of what's new. Or something you saw for yourself that was like, okay, wow, that was great. And it took it to the next level. doesn't have to be some grand dramatic thing either. Okay. Well, I'm just thinking. So one thing for me was, was starting to really relate to where people are and what it takes to bring them to the next level. So rather than speaking about the whole thing, only speaking from whatever level and what's the step to the next level was a yep. big thing. So as people look down, you know, if you're a executive or right now I'm coaching someone who's going to step into a CFO role for the first time. I do a lot of coaching for execs that are about to step into being truly executives is, is looking down and realizing you only see the rung or two of the ladder below you, but you have all the capacity but you really need to reconstruct like all the layers down and speak to whatever's appropriate at that layer to yeah. move people up. That was a big insight rather than the whole of thing, which is the whole thing. Yeah. People. Or, you know, then it just becomes platitudes to those people. So that was a profound insight that had me shift the way I coach a lot of people and executives and hold them accountable to empowering people rather than that. You know, what do you mean? You don't know how to do X. Right. There was a time we all learned. Probably totally. not. So that, that was a profound breakthrough in, in, in empowering people. The other is having, giving the work away, like finding that I could create a community, which is something I just created a private online community where we own all the IP and all that stuff, invite only to be able to let people self-generate from the work I do and create it and run. So that's very, very, very cool. Completely and then the, giving up ownership. It's tough for people. Tough for me. Yeah. Tough for me. How do I be rigorous without owning it? Right. It's a hard one. That's, that's an I, art. I, that's an art form. Because you can't step over the fact that you're doing a really bad job without, yeah. and, and not be like controlling it. It's a little hard. So yeah. I'm still struggling with that one. Yeah. The second question is, what is a conclusion that you had about life or business or anything? Just some conclusion you, you had made that you broke this year. Or some sacred cow that you had that you let go of. I think it's that thing I just said that if I don't control it or if it doesn't, if they don't do it exactly my way, then it's never going to work. Yeah. You know, I was like, okay, you have to lead it this way. And this is how you have to look at it. 
letting go of that and letting things make the difference they can or will rather than doing it the way I would. You know, I was like, only if you're at this level should you do this. And now I'm like, eh, at different levels, you're going to do different iterations of it. Hmm. Well, it was a big shift, big realization that that may be bullshit. You know, I, I, I funny you say that because recently I've experienced something similar with training someone in tribal leadership to teach it. Mm-hmm. And the amount of times I find myself literally forcing myself not to open my mouth mm-hmm. as, you know, that individual is, you know, coaching and, and, and leading because it's totally not where I would go with the conversation. Yeah. And then there's the part of me, you know, I would never come from it from controlling it to be a contribution to the conversation. You know, there's so much that I want to add, you know, you know, my way of dominating is, well, there's one thing I'd like to add here, you know, something, yeah. something like that. Right. Or really great. What you said, I'd like to also share, you know, and just totally overstep. Right. So just not saying anything and watching them deliver and then watch the reaction and be like, Oh, they had, they got value out of that. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Cause I, I'm in the same place. I'm like, all right. You know, and then I, I actually genuinely tell myself, okay, Eric, shut the fuck up. Literally, <laughs> to myself. You have to sit on your hands and you're like, <laughs> I know, I know. I know. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to turn that microphone. Yeah. I, if I'm co-leading, I just turn my microphone off and I'm like, not, I'm not going for that button. That's nope. smart. That's so I'm not going to add for that thing. So I'm the same way. The thing I find that people struggle with now that I'm, I'm like training a few people to leave my work or our work. Cause you know, Richard and Anurag and, Alan and a bunch of people have contributed to all this work that we put together. And I still do a lot of work with Alan Kahn. But the thing I find that you have to intervene with is the spaces. Like, well, people weren't generating. Of course. What did you think they were going to? Well, they're always doing that when you're there. Oh, you thought they were being better for me. No, that was me generating them. And it's like, there are certain spaces that you really got to intervene with because when people don't know it, they just don't know they don't know it. And then they're like, oh, you have to bring that. That's like a shock for people. I I find that there's places you don't intervene at all and it turns out, and then there's places you're, I think it's the spaces that you really have to like interrupt. And Totally. It kind of makes it fun, a little scary, but fun. Yeah. But we die in the end, so what the hell? Exactly. So on that note, on that pleasant note. Tequila. Yes. If people want to get in touch with you uh, or find out more about your work, what you know, where, where do people go? How do they contact you? Websites, offerings? So, of course, you know, I work, I coach at LinkedIn. So I have a LinkedIn website for myself or a, a profile for myself and my company. My company is called Un, which means one. Okay. Speak some Latin or even Spanish. My website is b-un.com, b one when we're one with ourselves, one with our customers, one with our people we work with, where there's no separation, there's always joy and success. That's kind of how we operate. Whatever's between us gets disappeared so that we're just kind of one with the whole thing. So our website is b-un.com. And that's how people can get a hold of me or my email, Scott at Beun, and the whole team's there. And we now have an invitation-only kind of sangha for people who are up to a world that works for everyone with nothing and no one left out and they're willing to contribute their genius. So you'll probably see people like Eric, you know, it just got created last week. Finally, after five months of 
of work and preparation in a software company. It, I haven't even gotten any invites out. So there's like six of us on it. But in the next couple of months, you'll see that, you know, and the idea is to just have IP be free and available and support each other. And, you know, we're all in this mess together, especially us who want to have people perform and get connected. So it was like, how do we create a Sangha, an enlightened community of people that are doing that instead of holding on to stuff?